You are listening to The Think Tank, the unofficial NAFO podcast, brought to you by your best brain-damaged dogs and friends. Now please welcome your hosts, Matt, the TWAFO CEO, and Joe Place. Hello and welcome to the Think Tank. Less pronouncing nonsense, more pronouncing knowledge. Uh, today we've got an episode which has been planned, I think, since since the very start. At this, our guest who we will have on later was part of the, our discussions before this even became podcast. So I'm excited that we finally done it. It's only been uh, how many months? Six, yeah, yeah. seven, eight, nine, ten months. <laughs> well, uh, it's fine. Yeah, when when he when um when we first discussed it, he he wasn't sort of super famous and asking presidents questions and things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> But but now we have to um we've, we've booked him. We have to book in advance now to schedule him mm-hmm. in. So, um, yeah, and I think we he will talk about it later. But he was one of the first um sort of academic fellas in fact I, I introduced him and drew his um fella for him mm-hmm. so we talked about this in the very first episode so if anyone who's listened you'll know who we're talking about but i guess yeah. we won't mention his name uh um, yeah. i suppose we should say who we are just in case so i'm joe and i'm, I'm matt and aren't you also the ceo of twafo i am indeed yes can I'm you explain very... that yeah so <laughs> when when musk bought twitter um, I thought, you know, this, he's going to end up selling it for a dollar or for a euro or something like that. Um, so I thought, oh, if I, I'll set the company up now, and then, and then, so when when it's ready, um, we can sell Nafo Twitter um, for Nafo a dollar. Nice. Yeah, um, and I thought I'll be in charge, so I'm the CEO. <laughs> oh, nice. There you go. Can I have some like really? empty title that just gives me all the money but I doesn't do anything like executive um director of business management executions or something something so <laughs> vapid. um uh you can you can be um the artistic and creative director in charge of um meme creation if you would like oh yeah but i don't have to actually create them i just come up with ideas great yeah okay okay yeah yeah that's fine yeah okay you can be meme strategist then Oh, meme strategist. Yeah. Oh, that's that's my dream job. That, that, that's what I want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you just plot plot them out. You don't actually have to do anything. Yeah, that makes Perfect. sense. Is that okay? And then, yeah, and then I'll get all the money right from our amazing business adventure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely, and you'll get a percentage as well because you're the strategist. So yeah, that's how it works. That's how it works, isn't it? Yeah, that sounds like business to me. <laughs> um, okay, cool. So um, obviously. So last so today for any whenever this comes out today is the eighth of June. This has been a week. Oh no, less than a week actually since our last recording when we mm-hmm. had Paul Massaro on. And obviously, it's not been the best week. So obviously, this week the the biggest 
thing that has happened was the explosion at Novokovka Dam. And, you know, lots of people are now without homes, uh, people are without water, people are on the roofs. Um, on the Ukraine side, they seem to be getting some aid and volunteers, but on the Russian-occupied side, they are not being helped at all. The Russians aren't helping them. Uh, lots of animals have died. The environment, we have no idea what the effects will be, but it doesn't look good. There's mm. lots of important uh, like what wildlife and ecosystems in that region. So, yeah, it's been a difficult week. And I felt such a strange contrast in my personal life because, you know, I go to, I do my job, I do my things. Uh, I see my friends. I have a quote-unquote normal week in one degree, but this has definitely been affecting me this week and I think many other people um, not just in Ukraine it does feel very close to me because first of all I've been to Kherson and I you know this is a country that I'm in and a country I care about deeply but I think for anyone who cares about this it's been a difficult week uh, so yeah bit bit less uh, happy than last week after seeing you know Moscow get attacked and things like that. It's not that yeah. it's enthusiastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's um, uh, it's just horrific, and it? I don't know. There's uh, there's not a lot you can. Uh, well, it's just so horrific what they've done is effectively they've poisoned the land for for years, haven't they? If not longer, <clears throat> so it's you yeah. can't. I, uh, it's gone, they've gone to the scorched earth thing. I think that's what it is. Just desperation times. Um, so, yeah. And the other thing that has annoyed me this, with it, it's been the general reaction. Okay, some people have been like, this is horrific, you know, as in like, I'm talking about governments and organisations. Mm. Some we've just had absolute crickets from. You've had nothing from. Yeah. And, yeah. and okay, there was some news coverage, but then it just felt like, Everyone's like, oh, this is bad. Like, it's just another bad thing that happens over here. It's like, I don't think people realize the scale of this. This is such a, this isn't quote unquote just a missile strike on a flat, right? Which is obviously horrific. But, you know, this is something which has major implications and effects. And I just feel that it's, it, it reminds me a bit of when Crimea was first annexed. Everyone's like, oh, we're concerned. Like, okay. And, and what? what? What are you going to do then? It just, mm. yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know whether it was deliberate or just a complete cock-up from Russia. Both would be absolutely on brand for them because either they couldn't control it and they accidentally blew it up because they don't know how to look after things and they're really incompetent. That's very much how Russians operate. But also so would be basically shooting themselves in the foot by even damaging their own, the land they have come to quote-unquote liberate you know and make the world pay attention to an extent because even though i've said that the response has been bad you know it's still i don't know what's going to happen next and i don't think it's on <laughs> I think it's good for them right i don't understand what if they've done it deliberately i don't think what they'd get but you know maybe because it's really affecting the water in crimea i could imagine them being like right we might lose crimea well let's make it so there's no water there. Let's make it then, you know, like a child. I, no, I can't have it. No one can. That's also very much a Russian tactic. So, and th there's a historical precedent, of course. I want, you know, with the Soviets blowing up the Japanese dam. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know whether it is. I don't think it matters either way. It's resp Russia's responsibility. Um, it's 100% on them. Yeah, I've just been watching all the um, polls. So when when something like <clears throat> when something like this happens, you can tell 
who is who is being paid to say things right. online yeah so so what i think is happens is that people measure the performance of their lies and propaganda and they have to send a report into their boss or, or mm-hmm. whoever's paying them so they use a poll to actually say yeah look see 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 yeah, you know right I'm, even if it's like a hundred people yeah 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 <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, but you, you look at the, they've all done it. They have all done it, and without fail. And it just shows you how many people they can they can get to listen to their words. Uh, that's yeah. basically it. That's that's why they do it. Um, yeah. So, us ruining their polls is very, is a really um, productive use of our time. Um, do you think? Because I've sh- never been sure. I've never been convinced. Yeah, yeah. Of this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. They use as performance. Um, performance indicators so they wouldn't do it otherwise so um so and it, and it's meant ru- to as many polls sorry yeah and it's meant it's meant to sort of legitimize that all oh, these are mm-hmm. both equal opinions it's like no yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> clearly they're yeah. not you know ugh. yeah ruin as many as you can that's what i say ruin um, twitter polls there we go yes, that, definitely. Is, that is official advice ruin yes. twitter polls. the first the first one i really ruined was the um one from uh, Johannes Norman of the AFD. Um, I really enjoyed that one. Oh, that was a fun one. Yeah. And he got mad yeah. and he was like, oh, our democracy has been ruined by trolls. Like, hmm, okay. But you've put a public tr- poll on Twitter. What did you expect? Like, I don't know. Like, well, I'm going to ignore <laughs> yeah, you yeah, anyway. Yeah. It's like, well, so you, because he was pretending this was a legitimate democratic process. Like, oh, no, but you can't actually come and vote. Like what? So you wanted <laughs> the people you wanted to vote to vote. Yeah, like, oh. yeah, yeah. He he did a not blocking me, but that was really I really enjoyed that one. He, yeah, and he started replying, and that like, was mad. Oh, fun, fun time. Yeah, I really enjoyed that one. Um, and yep. Yeah, so do that. Ruin as many as you can, please. It really does help. We've we're still going on about Roger Waters as well. Oh, Roger Waters. Uh-huh. What's he been up to? He, I saw he did some video for what's that? left-wing news site you know the ones that are like we do the news that you don't hear oh is it double down double down that's it yeah i actually didn't think i used to not think they were that bad but then i saw they had roger waters i refused to give him a watch saying Mm. that sets the record straight i'm like i'm sorry like you shouldn't be giving him a platform right now they seem to have gone the idea it's quite funny because it's kind of what paul messiah was talking about you know fighting right-wing fire with left-wing fire but it's just ending up as Doing the approach of, oh, well, we'll just copy the right-wing media's approach of clickbait articles and misleading headlines, uh, which I think for a journalist agency compared to, say, someone on Twitter is worse because you're meant to give us a degree of truth. And Mm. I I think it's just really irresponsible. And, yeah, Yeah. to give a platform to Roger Waters right now is just downright insulting. Yeah, so, yeah, he's come back because he got an endorsement from... RFK, both of whom have appeared in Pekka's um, Vatnik soup. <laughs> so, um, uh, RFK, uh, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. Oh, um, the guy who Jack Dorsey has endorsed. And yes, that's right. Yeah, he's a, he's a super anti-vaxxer, right? And yeah, anti-vax conspiracy theorist appeared on Twitter with um, Musk in a space where they basically um, uh, slandered Ukraine for an hour or so. Um, so yeah, it it was not good. <laughs> but but then I mean, but then you but then if you go to Pekka's um Vatnik soup site, 
you, you and you start looking at these people you can see that they all work together um mm. it's all coordinated it was, they all work together they all have the same messages and when you understand that you know what's going on but obviously we they not everyone has the access there's the knowledge of um batlick soup their fingertips so they go oh he's a presidential candidate ah okay and he says ukraine are bad or whatever and it's just uh, what is his stance on ukraine is it that we shouldn't be sending money or is it that yeah yeah or... so so you, he's on the roger waters type you know let's negotiate let's get into peace talks and negotiate mm. and but then when you start getting into the conspiracy theories you get biolabs and all the usual crap you know mm. so um yeah, so he's going for the Democratic nomination, apparently. Yeah, so. I mean, I would like to say that I don't think he would take over. But then again, people said that about Trump in 2016. No, no, right? yeah, so. he, he won't. He won't. I hope not. Um, I think he's got 10% or something like that. So. Eh. On Which the light, you brought up Pekka, and actually on a lighter note, uh, I did see that there was some woman, she did some quote, like some kind of, expose of him in his style like oh let's do a thread about pekka and really how he really is. yeah oh it's fun uh i retweeted it and pekka retweeted it you should go and have a look it's <laughs> just really really funny because she's trying first of all she misspells she thinks disinformation is spelled wrong because she i think she's using the russian spelling in her mind she has a, like a ukraine heart russia uh, thing or no the other way around on her bio oh, no. and she just puts nonsense i don't even think the photo is her it's probably actually just some guy um trying to use them to, like an attractive looking woman or they've hired some woman to like promote nonsense on twitter um <laughs> both would be very much what happens and um it's just it's really funny because she's trying to do this expose and of saying how he peddles like, right-wing lies and stuff like this and it's just so badly done and people are just making really poor quality of insults and then a load of fellas because pekka found it including myself went there i said like mom i said oh like mom i want pekka it's like and mom and your mom says you know well we have pekka at home like this <laughs> <laughs> uh, but i i love i love his threads i i um helped him out with um one of the ones about um helga larouche and the schiller institute um which is a particularly favorite subject of mine um yeah yeah it's like a vatnik academy, you, vatnik you, academy. Uh, yeah yeah so all the, loads of different people appear at their events and in their conferences and write their pa write papers for them yeah we, we should probably so, dig into them in some episode i feel that's i think so um it's just a question of finding who would be good to talk about that i wonder I can talk about them for hours. <laughs> okay, then we can probably just maybe next we can, one, maybe one of the times when we haven't got a guest, we can talk about. I this. think we should. I think we should. They're they're very interesting, um, interesting as in what the hell is going on there type of way. Yeah. Well, there we go. Um, I think they think the something like the Queen was responsible for nine eleven or something like that. The the Queen was responsible for nine eleven. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's new. Do you want me to check? Uh, sure, we have time. <laughs> I do, yeah. Um, so <laughs> I'm just, yeah. So they have all sorts of conspiracy theories. Um, Obama, um, Obamacare was a Nazi depopulation plan or, or something. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, 
here we are. Yeah, so, I mean, her husband ran a um, ran for president so many times. It was just unbelievable. Um, they want to change the, um, do you know much about music? Um, so they want to change the frequency of the note A. What? So yeah. So um, normally we you have note A is 440 hertz. Mm-hmm. But they want to change it to something called Verdi tuning, which is 432 hertz. Um, and Lyndon LaRouche, who is the original guy, believes it is related to the structure of the universe. How can you change a note? A note has its own free. You can't. What? What do you tell all bands, every musician to record it to somehow modify the note to change free? What? Yes, yes, this that's is, right. This yeah, is like hey, saying we want to make the sky purple. Or, yes, what? yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, oh. the, uh, you know how I know Lyndon Rouge's name? Because it's in an episode of The Simpsons where um, Homer says something like Lyndon Rouge was right. Hang on, I will. Uh, okay. Um, so, wait, yes. I will find. Yes. How do you how do you spell his name? L y n d o n l a r o u c h e. Ah, that's it. So so it's a joke because um because uh, that's it. So the aliens, uh, Kang and Kodos, have taken Bob Dole and Bill Clinton's bodies, and it's something <laughs> like. Oh, it goes like Lyndon LaRouche was right. So, oh, there we go. Yeah. 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 <laughs> there is a branch of LaRouche um, called Space LaRouche, which is also interesting. Um, but we can talk about all this in I another think, episode, I think. I think I think this is a whole can of worms that we could go. Um, yes. He believed that 9 11 was orchestrated by Queen Elizabeth II and the Saudi Arabian royal family. Um, well, the royal family thing isn't miles off because obviously al-qaeda had ties to them but that's i don't think i imagine he's saying that they they literally sat down and planned it rather than yeah yeah oh absolutely yes yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> so the queen with the it, queen yeah. just because heard, you know lizard people the u.s government jews i've heard those ones this is a mm. new one yeah new. okay oh no well it goes all the way back to the um rothschilds and the lizard family royal it family people does doesn't yeah. it it always um, goes back to anti-semitism oh yes it's just here horrifically and and um so they have a long list of people who have spoken at their things so um dennis kuchinich who is the campaign manager for rfk speaks at their events Jimmy Dore, who is another presidential candidate, he does. Um, Jill Stein, Tulsi oh, Gabbard, Jackson Hinkle, Caleb Morpin, oh, George Galloway. So, uh, the list is endless. The list is endless. So it's like this is like the hub of actually insane people. And they've that's so oh. I mean, if you look at Pecker's thread, then a lot so they sort of invented the multipolar world thing. You know, the not the one that multipolar as um, you and Ben understand it, but the multipolar as in the mad Russian version of it, where Russia and China get to do whatever they want without any pushback. Mm. Yeah. So um, they want a maglev railway. They want um, they're big fans of the Belt and Road Initiative of China. Funnily enough. Hmm. Um, yeah, so oh, and she's friends cool. with um, Kim.com as well. 
I wonder, do you think that they put out the insane stuff so people just dip it, dismiss them as whack jobs, but actually they're serious? Or do you think that they are actually insane, but uh, they try to present as normal? I wonder which way around it is. I think it's hard to, it's hard to tell, to be honest. Um, uh, mm. They, yes. Um, I think Linda Nauru started as a Marxist, um, but then started to be, go sort of culty, far righty. Um, but they want to merge the like the f- extremes, so the far left and far right. So they want to turn the horse, the horseshoe into a circle, if you see what I mean. So to get the mm-hmm. two to meet. Um so <sighs> yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, we'll talk about it a longer. I think so, um, yeah. But I think hopefully we can get Ben to give us a proper version of multipolar because <laughs> um well, because yeah. when I when I had a dis when I've had a discussion with him, um we can pick it up. He says, oh, no, no, there is a thing, but it's not what people think it is. So, yeah. I've put it in the plan. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, what else has happened? So the NATO summit is is coming up, and Zelensky said that we don't see a point in attending unless they give us a sign that we'll join. I saw something this morning, but I don't know if it was taken out of context because I see people do this a lot, you know. Oh, there's, they said there's no point in talking about the ascension right now. In a way, that's true. I understand that they can't join right away, but I understand that there is a need to have a sign. Mm. I don't know what's yeah. going on there. So the um, Guardian has reported that if they don't get um, progress, then um, certain countries are just going to um, say, okay, we're going to provide troops. And That's interesting. Uh, the Guardian reported this because they only yeah. saw one article yeah. saying yes, it, it was, didn't look legit. Yeah, it was The Guardian. Um, I retweeted it, I think. So, um, yeah, I'll have a look into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it's Poland and the Baltics. And um, My assumption is they probably are say, I guess, I mean, I guess they might mean it, I, but maybe this is also a way to put pressure on NATO to do something because, like, well, we'll take matters into our own hands. And obviously, NATO would be like, oh, well, we don't want you to do that. So I okay, oh, I guess we'll make some progress. I guess it's I, I, possibly, yeah, I, I guess. Uh, or they've just had enough. Yeah, that's also possible because the Baltics and Eastern Europe have generally been stronger, yeah. which is weird just because that's what we're going to talk about with Ben in a bit, mm-hmm. I'm sure. Oh, yeah, we've already yeah. mentioned the name of our guest, but we, <laughs> we didn't actually say who we have as a guest. Um, so, yes, I guess the cat's out of the bag. Our best guest will be Ben Talis. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Yes. Um, uh, friend, friend of the podcast. <laughs> friend of the fellas. And, yeah, and um, he has a very fine Matt, Matt P original fella of uh, craft work with their um, yeah with their think tank, which is the um, inspiration for this podcast. Actually, the yes, name of it, true. yeah, um, yeah. So he's got a craft work. We started out. What was it? First of all, it was a PZH two thousand. And then it's, he's also got a leopard version that I created for him as well, I think. So, yeah. I think he, he, took, his fe- he, took, it, he took his fellow profile picture away, though, didn't he, when he started getting more famous, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it comes back every so often. Yeah, hold on. Yeah. Where is his profile? Oh, I'm just going to see if he still has it. Hey, is, is Twitter hiding? Mm. Uh, it may be. I, I bet, but no, no, I just spelled it as Ben, not Benjamin. That's why. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, yes, he hasn't got his fellow. Uh, he's got his book, which we can talk he's about. He's got his book. 
Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's going to be a big theme of what we're going to talk about yeah, later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What else has been happening? I suppose is the continued incursions into Belgorod. That's going to be very interesting. Um, we've seen more of them. Yeah. As I said, I said last week we've seen more of them, and it seems that they have no signs of, of coming down, of slowing down. Do you want to know what is funny? I went onto the app, you know, UA Maps, which gives you. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. What I like now, they've had to add a third color because it used to be like blue for Ukrainian actions, red for Russian actions, or oh, maybe not quite because like explosions and stuff like this. But then they put, they have a green color now for the uh, Russians liberating <laughs> Russia. I quite, I find that quite funny. It's like, oh, we need a new colour. Um, yeah. So they, what did they do? So they, they captured a colonel or something like that. And they, they said, if you want prisoners back, you have to come and meet us. And the guy just refused to. And then yeah. Wagner said, oh, we'll come and sort it out. So yeah. Wagner, have gone, think... Wagner have gone rogue, haven't they? And, um, or have they? Mm. Yeah, I, you could never tell because, you know, like when there was the um, famous thing that was very meme worthy of, you know, Ferguson going like, where is the ammo? These guys are dead. Yes. Right. And then, but then what happened? They actually got some ammo. I'm never yeah. sure like how much is a performance of his? It's, is it just how they negotiate? <laughs> how much oh, do they? He's, he's yeah. Putin's chef, right? Yeah, right. Uh, his so, background is wild, by the way. Like he was yeah, a yeah. children's illustrator. He sold hot dogs. And then he just goes from, I'm going to own restaurants to running um, Wagner. Okay, he had yes. a bit of a criminal background. But it seems like that's a, that's a, a jump in career. <laughs> yeah. So you don't do anything like that without permission in Russia, do you? No. So, but um, um, yeah. it do, they do seem to be getting a bit more reckless, um, I guess, because there's a bit of a vacuum left from the lack of proper coordination well, and quality troops in the Russian army. I'm not overly sure what they're doing at the moment. I'm not a uh, military. I'm not a military guy, but it, it seems that they're just sort of sitting there. Is that right? But go, it seems so. But going back to the Belgrade thing, uh, as far as I understand, the soldiers mm. that were captured were given to the Ukrainian prisoner exchange. Okay, um, so the, the the guy, the governor, didn't turn up then. Yeah, yeah, um, and they basically continued this thing that oh, we've lost control, mm. and sorry. By <laughs> seemed to be the, the response. There was looting in one of the yeah. villages nearest the okay. border. Russians were looting their own shops and houses, even. Boy, it's uh, it's interesting uh, because I guess looting happens in any situation. There's a breakdown. That's just something that people do, unfortunately. Mm. But it does seem that the Russians were quite keen. I mean, I'm always aware that, of course, these guys, the Russian Legion and the um, um the other one why can i never remember the names um the, you know they they would like to drum this stuff up but there were videos mm -hmm. from people recording their own shots and houses like they've just robbed us and it just shows how much on a thread at least these regions of russia are oh. and mm. it's just there was there was another one where they're housed not is it house refugees or soldiers in a university and they've had to put the students under lockdown because they're being threatened and attacked by drunken Russians walking around the university, stealing their stuff, beating them up, harassing the women. Yeah, so that's, um, yeah, that's at the nearby university, I think. Yeah. So that's going so well for them. 
it's yeah and but of course yeah they they can never make the leap that it's like maybe if we weren't so doing such horrible things that these horrible things wouldn't be happening to us right and this is something interesting as well you know like with the soldiers that do go back to the towns they will bring this violence back we'll see the violence mm. against the women and the children from these like traumatized soldiers and things like that this always happens yeah and th- this is actually something that happens a lot through history in other countries too you know when countries do stuff abroad mm. violence gets brought back quite often through the state like the state will practice its, its control over people abroad and try it on people at home mm. um but i also think it can be done through people you know soldiers will bring back issues from home yeah um to, to their home story mm. uh and it'll bring back a whole host of problems guns yeah. i don't know yeah uh, i saw a, I mean, yeah i yeah. saw a video on billy's osn <laughs> osn thing of um since 69 um of a video of an ex wagner guy who had just come back and the rent it was either a rent collector yeah rent collector came to get his rent and the guy just pulled out a gun and shot him on the stairs because he didn't want to pay that was it so, yeah, so they're stealing, they're taking their guns back and just causing havoc. It's already happening. Mm-hmm. I was like, I don't want to pay my, my mortgage. I'll just shoot the guy at the building society. That is insane. Doing it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they've got a lifetime of problems now, haven't they? Uh, yeah, I think that's uh, pretty obvious. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, Russian history is just a succession of things getting worse, and even the moments where something might get slightly better, it yeah. never lasts, and it gets maybe a different kind of worse. Like the Tsar, Cyrus Russia was terrible in yeah. so many ways, but then the USSR was pretty terrible in a different set of ways. Okay, now a lot of people now in housing, but you know, especially under Stalin could just yeah. get shot for nothing yeah uh so you know and yeah. then okay the 90s oh the soviet union's collapsed okay we have more freedom but now we've got absolute insane corrupt uh people taking over and rampant inequality and poverty and corruption and crime and yeah. uh yeah so and yes. then putin comes in to calm that down oh things are stabilizing but now and then as that time goes on, it gets worse and worse with yeah. giving control over people. So it's always getting worse in a new, in a new way. Yeah, it's not good, and but poor Ukraine is suffering the um, um, suffering the side effects, I guess. And I don't know any other way of describing it. Uh, anyway, I keep thinking of questions to Ben. I keep writing them down. So um, okay, yeah. well, yeah. Big ones, big questions. Um, uh, <laughs> they they are quite critical, uh, but but that's good because it'll give them a chance to sort of answer things. I was curious, you know, what are people saying as responses? And I'm like, mm-hmm, well, this is good because you can, it's a chance for him to explain. A bit like with, with Paul last week, you know, I was like, what do you do? People don't know what you do. And I think it's, it's good to give people a chance to. Yeah. I mean, the, the Paul and Ben are seen around everywhere now. And it's good to say you know what do you do what do you think about this and yeah it's really yeah because I, because I think sometimes especially if you mostly follow people on social media you don't know this deeper level of things you know you don't necessarily know all their thoughts on this that and the other yeah um yeah I mean we could have done with about four hours with Paul couldn't we 
Uh, easily, easily. I still want to debate him a bit on some of his points, but um, or maybe yeah. get someone else to debate him. Who knows? But he, uh, yeah, we'll see. yeah. Um, um, where are we? Oh, and we... sorry, I've just seen that Yanis Varoufakis. Is that how you say his name? My pronunciations are awful, and I really apologise. He's getting involved now, saying how wonderful Roger Waters is as well. It's like, oh, just go away. Just stop. Oh, You're not helping the man, any of you. The man who was sort of like held up is like, oh, this cool guy wears a leather jacket. He's going to save the economy and stick it to the capitalists. And then that when he was in government, he was in government for like a week or something, and then left, and they got a book tour. Like, whoa, well done, guy. You really uh, did well there. And that's just what he yeah. does. He turns up, says something that sounds interesting, but has absolutely no substance, mm-hmm. and then disappears. Oh, yeah. he annoys me. He annoys um, me. He's he looks organi- cool. He does look cool. Um, his organisation <laughs> has um, interesting links with uh, Jeremy Corbyn as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's European left and DM 25, I think it is. Anyway, that's for another day. But everyone is connected to everybody, and, and this is what I'm discovering. Um, there was a time when I didn't mind, you know, I didn't think too badly of Corbyn. But, um, yeah, <laughs> just, yeah, yeah. I mean, exasperated. There's, a, there's a lot of people, so. yeah, there's a lot of people did a lot of good work in the 80s on the anti-apartheid uh, movement. Um, but then they took that, and that, that's sort of the prism through which they look at everything. Um, yeah, this Israel is, and Palestine, or and it's similar the way we discussed Vietnam in America. This is we talked about this last time, didn't we? Yeah. This is the thing with a lot of this older generation, you know, Chomsky, all these people. They can't conceive of an enemy different to the one they knew from the past. Um, exactly this, right. This, yes. It just blinds them to considering yep. that. Sure, the American government, the British government, oh, a lot of things you can criticise them for. You you will hear that from me. I don't spend this podcast to do it because that's not what we do this podcast for. Yeah. I think, like, you know, was this war going on? I only spending a lot more time being critical of them. I, I feel that but this is not my focus now. Um, but it doesn't mean that they can't do good or that we should say we should ignore their enemies or anything yes, like that yeah. it doesn't yeah. make a bit a bit of sense at all it's just yeah the the what um you know oh russia's doing bad stuff but nato's done bad stuff in the past that doesn't make it okay now i always find yeah. it funny when people say though nato it's like wait wait, wait hang on do you just mean america or just, like actually when was the last time all of nato did something afghanistan sure like was well, all of NATO involved in Iraq? No. Mm-hmm. Was was uh what about and they always go, oh, but what about here? What about here? It's like, hang on, no, you're talking about specific countries. It's not NATO as a whole. When NATO yeah. as a whole acting together is multiple things, but it's yeah. not quite it's just a shorthand. People don't really understand what it is. They just see mm. this big scary group of countries yeah. together. It's like, sorry, yeah, is the Czech Republic is Czech Republic uh, responsible for Iraq? Uh, I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But in, in Ukraine, Ukraine have received help from Morocco, Australia, yeah. New Zealand, Japan, South Korea, um, various um, Arabic countries as well. I think Pakistan has sent aid and ammunition as well. So is Pakistan part of NATO? <laughs> Famous NATO country, Pakistan. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. They're, they're, they've been notably supported of the of the US, haven't they? Yeah, and so, yeah. um, it's just it's just utterly ridiculous. 
Um, also, bear in mind, I always like to point this out to people because they'll go, oh, NATO likes Israel and stuff like this. It's like, well, also, is it, you know, Ukraine also recognizes Palestine as a country. They're, Ukraine but recognizes both as legitimate countries. People forget that. <laughs> Britain doesn't. Yeah, yeah. No, you know? no. <laughs> Ukraine it's... actually has quite a progressive stance on this. You know, they recognize both as countries. and stuff. Yeah, yeah you, I mean, you would expect there to be more solidarity between oppressed peoples. Uh, yeah. But there you go. Yeah. yeah. Once once America picks a side, then the other people who don't like America pick the other side, no matter what the other side is doing. So Yeah. Yeah. I think um, that's... I was, did I tell you about when I was in Jordan and I talked to uh, I talked to people in Jordan about what they thought about the war? Oh no, go ahead. It was really interesting. So nearly well actually everyone I spoke to was very sympathetic to Ukraine. Uh they do not like Russia. Um they so they and they a lot of people in Jordan, their parents or grandparents, a lot of them are from Palestine. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of them also are still feeling very sore about uh, 1918, you know, feeling betrayed by the British for Sykes-Picot when they thought they'd have an Arab country. And basically Britain and France are like, nah, we're dividing it. Uh, so obviously there's a lot of uh, dislike of Western countries and they have a big suspicion of political games. And a lot of people said this, like, I'm worried that after the war, America is going to betray you or they'll they'll do something like this. And, and from their perspective, I can completely understand why they would say this. You know, it, mm-hmm. I, with their history, I do understand. But, yeah, these people, these are Arabic people, many far, very far from the war. They had sympathy for Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, and like sometimes they go, oh, but America, I'm like, oh, here we go. And they go, yeah, I don't, uh, you know, I think they are kind of responsible and they'll, like, another, oh no. And then they go, like, as in after the war, they will do it. It's like, oh, okay. It's <laughs> a lot of interesting. They always, yep. yeah. Um, but, but Ukraine is a candidate nation for the EU now, so. Yeah, um, uh, it is a bit different. And they it do is say very that. different, yeah. Yeah. And this is something one guy I spoke to said, uh, a, a Bedouin guy, he was saying that, you know, in Israel-Palestine, that's probably a forever war. It's probably not going to go anywhere. I hope Ukraine isn't like that. I'm worried it will be. It's like, yeah, I can understand the concern. Like, that's yeah. the thing. He understands that. And, yeah, yeah I don't know. They were very... Um, it, it was just very interesting. It, it, yeah, because, that you know, seems like a sensible position to take, given his experience. Yeah. Um, I, I, like, I don't expect people from other countries that are far away perhaps to be exactly aligned with me because that would be weird mm-hmm. but I, I i think it's interesting because you know you always get these people like the real the rest of, only the west stands for ukraine it's like that is objectively not true and please mm-hmm. go to some countries and talk yeah. to people about well I, I um i was talking to someone from kenya on twitter i just talk to random people sometimes and it was very nice and we were discussing support in africa and it seems to be Mainly East and Central Africa that it has the Russian support and yeah, which, Western... is Russia, which is where Russia has like more interest. It has uh, yeah going yeah. on yeah, yeah. Um, but the support for Ukraine is much stronger in um, West Africa and Southern Africa. So it's quite interesting. Mm. There was the, when the USSR was up and running, they um, there was a lot of university exchanges and you know the colonial movements and things like that um because a lot of people forget that ukraine was in the ussr yeah so, yeah uh yeah. actually even to this day though you still find <clears throat> like when i was in kiev there were 
African students still, or older yes. people who oh, came, yes. who came yeah. or people, or, or Africans who came here, who are older, who went to study here back in the Soviet times and stayed. Yes, they, yeah, yeah. Not, yeah. It's not yeah. huge people, but they do happen, and there are these ties. Uh, and also, this is something uh, quite a lot of people from Middle Eastern countries come here to mm -hmm. study. Yeah. Um, and these things are good at fostering relationships and understanding communication channels. Yeah. Of course, some people go to Russia as well. So this is also yeah. part. I mean, I, I was discussing that, that sort of exchange and he said his friend went to Russia and got killed in a racist oh. attack. Um, and he says no one from Africa should ever go to Russia because of the hideous racism. Um, so there you go. Yeah. So um, I don't think... So far, I've not found anything worth anything good from Russia. Yeah, there you go. I'm sure there is something. I um, I don't have much more else to say at this point until Ben arrives. Yeah. I'm wondering maybe just take a pause until in like for like ten minutes, and then we come back. This is oh crikey, yeah, we've been talking for that long. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah that makes okay. sense. Uh, there's no, I don't think there's any copium or anything. There's not. That no, big. no, 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 no. Uh, Okay, so okay. I'll go break. and get something to eat. Yeah, I'll go and get yeah, something I'm to gonna... eat. Dear listeners, this week we have all been horrified by Russia's act of destroying the Novogahovka Dam in Kherson and the immense destruction and ecocide it has unleashed. There are several groups working to provide aid. Direct aid to U24 will benefit Ukraine and volunteers with lifeboats, motor pumps, water filtration stations, among other urgently needed gear. Donations can be made at u24.gov.ua backslash lifeboat. Lift 99 and Ragnar Sass at A-R-G-N-A-R-S on Twitter are also helping to expedite the evacuation of civilians and animals. Donations can be made at help99.co backslash donate. Thank you for your continued support for Ukraine. Gayo Wuhaklan. Not not everyone gets to ask the French French president questions. That was fun. That was that was pretty wild actually. And his answer wasn't as bad as I feared it might be. There's movement. I feel like my call. I understand sometimes stuff is taken out of context or poorly translated, but yeah, he'll say something which is like, oh no, what what are you saying? And then sometimes he'll say something which is, ah, yeah, that's that's a good point. You know, and he said, yeah, we should have listened to Eastern Europe more. Mm -hmm, you think? <laughs> I'm glad you recognise it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I forget who it was who called him the world's greatest think tanker, um, but he kind of has that mentality that he'll just float things as idea balloons that will go up. And I mean, the thing with think tanking is half the stuff people say doesn't work or doesn't fly but it's an interesting idea and he seems to have that mentality and he's willing to talk a lot more as you say than um than some of the others uh the other leading politicians certainly he's less careful yeah which i think is there's a time and a place for both i can say i guess but it's sometimes it's important to be like <laughs> yeah, that. On, on the plane back from china might not be it <laughs> I suspect that actually some of this conversation we should include, but I think we should properly introduce Ben because we just sort of started talking. Yeah, sorry, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll get Pingu to do some like magical editing there. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. We can go back. Uh, okay, so Matt, you can please introduce, I guess. I, I don't actually know what your title is now, Ben. <laughs> sure, I'll... I'll, I'll you can, you can, so you can introduce yourself. Introduce yeah. yourself. 
So good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I'm Benjamin Tallis, Senior Research Fellow at the German Council on Foreign Relations. And among other things, I was NAFO's first research fellow. Yes, you were, with a Kraftwerk think tank. <laughs> That's right. Courtesy of you, Matt. Which <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very much appreciated. <laughs> and which has always, always raised a laugh and a smile wherever I've shown. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's one of my favourites. It is one of my favourites. What made you join NAFO in the first place, Ben? So I first became aware of NAFO when several people I followed on Twitter changed their profile pictures to what, I, well, I couldn't quite work out what it was at the time, but to <laughs> what I now know, um, Shiba Inu dogs. And I thought, yeah, what on earth is going on here? Um, and didn't didn't really twig that it was part of something bigger until more and more people who I respected their opinions on Ukraine or enjoyed the comments that they were making on Twitter started doing this. And then at some point, um, it was Matt, actually, who tagged me in a thread of people who were um, either experts on Ukraine or on issues related to Ukraine that fellas might want to follow. And as I was following on from Phillips O'Brien on that thread, I thought, goodness, this needs a, um, a deeper look. And then I, I just dug around a little bit, asked you, Matt, also what was going on. And it quickly became clear that this was something something different than we've seen before in the social media space. And the potential of it to actually harness this distributed creativity, to harness the, the power of people who wanted to do more, but had felt their hands were tied um, in order to really stick it to um, to the Putinists, to the people peddling disinformation on online and to actually stand up properly for Ukraine. I thought this is a wonderful idea because it did it with humor. It did it with style. And I thought that there was great potential in this. And one, one other thing that really caught my eye was that amazing video that uses Mode Selector's Dark Side of the Sun, um, which was a really early um, NAFO production. And just, I, I couldn't get over how creative this was. And I thought, there's something in this. I need to find out more. How do I get involved? And how do I get other people involved? And from that, I think quite a few others joined, like Mina Orlander. Um, she, she, funny story, she first contacted me when I changed my profile picture to the Kraftwerk fella, and she asked if I'd been hacked. And I said, no, no it's, <laughs> it's better than that. And so it rolled from there. And people like William Albert um, and others also joined on that, that recommendation. I had so many people ask me, you know, is this legit? Is this for real? And I could always say, yes, as far as I'm aware, it is. I think they're doing great stuff. So here's why you should be part of it, too. That's great. Why do you think it is so, you, you kind of touched on it, but why do you think NAFO has been so successful in terms of combating disinformation growth and what are its general strengths? I think there's a couple of things I'd, I'd highlight. One is that it doesn't have the constraints that um, state counter disinformation operations have. <laughs> there are very yeah. few things that NAFO, NAFO follows. Um, it's much more an ethos than something that would be codified or has to adhere to code of procedure or so on and so forth. That's the benefit of disaggregation and decentralization. Um, and that means not only can you uh, tap into this, this wellspring of creativity that's out there and people find so many interesting ways to promote the cause of Ukraine, to um, push back against Russian disinformation, and to basically try and take back the information space for, for democracy and for liberal causes, they find the ways that they can do that and the time with it, which they can contribute to that. And so I think that's that's a huge strength, um, as well as not having to adhere to the kind of codes of conduct or so on that would make it difficult to say some of the things that NAFO fellas have said um, in the course of the last year and a half. So I think there's, there's freedom that comes with that. 
Um, the other part of it, I would say, is that it, it taps into something deeper and something more um, that is what I've written about at various points and which features in, in the book at some stage, that I think this is the return of repressed dignity and repressed courage that for so long people thought they had to actually take this imbalanced information space that they were at the mercy of trolls, of peddlers of disinformation and of, of authoritarians, basically. And when they found out they weren't alone in hating that and wanting to do something about it, I think it really helped people to be able to stand up and say, actually, you know what, I don't have to take this. I can do something about it. It might be small, but altogether, we actually add up to doing something quite, quite big. And so from that has sprung what I think is now widely recognized as the best, um, it's not even counter counter disinformation, it's the best information operation mm. that's mounted by any kind of democratic society. I think it's fascinating this because yeah, it's not a state effort, it's not a coordinated effort. Um because those efforts tend to fail or they in a way, you know, if a government's doing something, some people will be suspicious of that, right? They'll be like, oh, but this government, I don't like this government. I don't want the government regulating this. Whereas we haven't got that risk. We we, we are completely centralised and self-motivated. Um, so why do you think, though, and this is something I think about a lot, you know, why, what did, let's say, not just the West, actually, but what did countries get wrong and still get wrong about countering disinformation? And why and what you know, NAFO is good at it because we decentralize. So I have an idea what you're gonna say, but I'd like to hear your thoughts. Sure, sure. Um yeah, a couple of things on that. I think the one thing is that we've seen, with the exception probably of the Ukrainian government, that governments aren't funny. Um that yeah. when, when you try and use humor in a way that is so effective as NAFO do, getting the kind of humor that is government approved is normally the kiss of death for these kind of things. I think it's it's again that freedom to to be able to creatively say and show things and to push push boundaries and push buttons and to really strike back hard um to ridicule as well and to make fun of to to laugh in the face of you know back of the bus authoritarians like some of the russian russian ambassadors out there on twitter <laughs> no no names mentioned and and again to be able to take the gloves off when necessary, but to do it in that kind of humorous way, I think that really points to the the heart of the lack of constraint that NATO NAFO um, leverages. But then again, I mean, if we think about how governments are seen and how they have been seen, perhaps some perceptions have been changed in the last year. I mean, in in Ukraine, we've all seen the courage and the bravery of people, but again, the state has been the the line between life and death and it's been states who have been coordinating the military support for ukraine and so on um and i think we've seen the ukrainian state in particular be able to be very effective in the information space partly also because they've taken the gloves off too and it's that willingness to go further and to say actually the rules of certain kinds of propriety don't matter in this type of situation we need to be able to step beyond it and so the the war has pushed ukraine into that flexibility. I'm not quite sure all of our governments are on, on board with that yet. And this ambiguous nature of government in, in this issue is highlighted in a way by Kama Camellia's um, wonderful Twitter bio, which takes on that old line, I'm, I'm from the government and I'm here to help, which famously Ronald Reagan said was the most terrifying sentence in the English language um, as part of his smaller, smaller government program, at least in theory. And so to invert that and say, actually, we're not from the government. We are here to help. We think governments should be there to help and do that in a better way, I think points again to a, re a rethinking that NAFO has perhaps 
um, prompted, certainly in the information space. Yeah, I, this this thing, you know, I, I've been thinking about this quite recently. <clears throat> you know, in a way, NAFO is stepping up and filling a vacuum, which some might say, oh, the government should be handling disinformation better. But actually, in a way, as you said, it's well, Ukraine's been fantastic at this, but it's quite hard for governments to do it without undermining the support for its own efforts. It's a kiss of death, as you said, which I think was a good phrase. I, I'm curious, you know, in an ideal world, would NAFO exist? Would we need such an, such an organisation? How do we combat it? Or is this the future? Do we need more of these decentralised movements? I, I don't have an answer for this. I'm just, I, I know it's something I just think about a lot. I don't even have a question there. Yeah. No, not at all. I think it's an interesting issue to think through and i think this this constellation of our different actors is something that a lot of people are rethinking the role of the state in the economy for example is being grow massively rethought at the moment the, the end of the washington consensus the end of neoliberalism and so on that's brought back a role for the states um so has as the pandemic and the return of um conflict with a great power in europe has brought this question back as well I, I would say in an ideal world, NAFO would exist or NAFO-like organizations would exist. And the states that are smart enough to uh, to try and harness them without hindering them will be the ones that are actually most effective. Trying to get everyone playing on roughly the same team. So aligning businesses, civil society actors, and I, I would include NAFO in that in the loosest possible sense, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What What is the N in NGO there? We could, we could argue. Um, but also then states and state agencies, uh, politicians and people, um, different communities, getting them all on the same page and actually playing for the same team is going to be vital in mastering the triple transition that we face. So that's ecological, technological and geopolitical, but also in winning this systemic competition against authoritarian regimes. And it's that flexibility and ability to coordinate different types of actors, which democracies should have the advantage in over authoritarian regimes. What we saw in the last 10 years was a version of this in the um, being used by the Putin regime with an ecosystem of competing different groups of actors being encouraged to undertake initiatives under pain of death. They got it wrong. And under the with, with the, the incentive of rapid promotion, if they got it right. And you look at people like Prigozhin in, in this regard. Mark, Mark Galliotti's work on this is very good, I think, about creating that sort of startup economy within a dictatorial or an authoritarian system. Um, but that has its limits, as we've seen, big time limits. If we can find a way to really actually leverage and harness that for democracy by being a bit more flexible, by opening up that space, but by consistently making sure that we align our goals and our messages, then I think we have everything to gain. Mm. So, but the big question is, how do we do that? I'll get back to you when I finish the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So I've seen different countries, so different governments and different government um, representatives react differently. I mean, the the Baltic states they've they've taken NAFO to their heart, and they and I think didn't we have the ambassador to the OSCE and the UN going to see Yulinov with a "You pronounce the nonsense" T-shirt, and I think she went to the IAEA. With another NAFO T-shirt as well, so um, yeah, so the, the Baltics, but they have the history of the elves as well, don't they? Um, and the US has got a, quite an open government, and so we've seen people like Paul Massaro. They, they've 
they've come out there yeah so there are people there willing to engage and talk but then you come to france and england france and the uk and nothing <laughs> you know and I, i've seen we saw ben wallace sort of accept his um accept his fellow he goes oh thanks very much and then that was it um no newspapers um so i mean we've we've been in we were interviewed by in German newspapers, weren't we, Ben? And then we've That's been right. on, all over the all over the place. But then you look at it's hardly mentioned in the UK at all, which is I find interesting in in, in itself. Really, um, I'm not sure why. A, some sort of reservation to sort of the British Reserve. Maybe they don't want to look stupid or something. I don't know. Yeah, it could be that. Yeah, but the yeah. So you look people like Adam Kinzinger. They're not bothered. I mean, he, his fellow was a guy in uh, in sort of like a fairground plane, wasn't he? Yeah, um, <laughs> that's right. absolutely yeah. absolutely brilliant. And so, some people have taken it to their hearts. Um, uh, it's just interesting the different approach by country, really. Um, it is. It, it absolutely is. And I mean, I think Callas warmly embraced her fellow. Um, yeah. we've seen that uh, Gabriela Landsbergis uh, has worn the NAFO T-shirt. Yes, he has. Like, yes, um, yeah. And I mean, he's he's an extremely strident supporter and one who saw the value of this as well. Um, I yeah, interesting. I mean, Wallace is the exception in the UK, of course. Um, but it would be interesting to look more into that actually as to why there is hesitance. Some certainly people I spoke to at um, a leading British university, let's say, who are in, experts in information um, warfare, as they they style themselves, mm. were very skeptical early on that this wasn't a state operation. <laughs> As much as you say the CIA doesn't exist. It doesn't. It doesn't. I've asked people in the CIA and they told me it doesn't. <laughs> right. So, I mean, you can say that to you blue in the face. And I, you know, I, I don't pretend to know everything about NAFO, but everything I have seen of NAFO suggested otherwise. And then eventually they accepted this. But I think they were just so thrown by the fact that it was so successful, unexpected and out of their frame of reference, really. And it went. It goes against an awful lot of the various models of understanding the information space and so on that we've seen. And so I think there's a lot of understanding work and conceptualization work to be done. It's almost like they're still suffering from a failure of the imagination to actually understand and comprehend what's what's going on with NAFO and how the information space is changing. I think this is quite a good point. I think the problem is with a lot of British academia is quite um small c conservative it's used to its models it's used to a sense of we know the best because we have some of the best universities mm. in the world and i think sometimes we might struggle i'm saying we because i'm an aspiring academic right um yeah. just, um we, you know i think sometimes we go oh we haven't quite we have these rules we this is the consensus oh if it's breaking out it's not going to last like actually maybe we've just got the wrong models maybe we've been approaching mm. it differently um or incorrectly even i think yeah. this might be a big part of it uh yeah so academics and we're quite old our academics are quite old and yeah maybe this is a part of it hmm. Honest, yeah, honestly, my mind was blown when i saw that mode selector video and um, with the, the the fella i think it's um spaghetti cossacks fella isn't it doing yes kind of vatnik tears <laughs> yes I mean, that's not the kind of thing that computes with a lot of people it has to be has to be said. So I think there's there's part part of the age thing is there, but also in a lot of British and British IR, 
in particular, um, yeah. there's been real problems in critical IR, which has actually become something of a almost dominant, if we, if we understand it as one thing, which which it isn't, but if we put that critical label over the top of a group of different approaches, it's quite dominant in British IR, international relations and security studies, academia. And they didn't really know what to make of a lot of the stuff about Ukraine. They were very skeptical of the West, very skeptical of um, providing weapons, very skeptical of using military means. And I think this has been such a challenge for them because it goes against the mode of deconstruction that was really common, the mode of parasitic critique that was extremely common, which contented itself with enjoying a lot of benefits of living in liberal societies without paying any dues to them, really, and by, by being very critical of them as well. So they're critical of liberalism, very suspicious of liberalism, of neoconservatism, of all of those type of approaches to IR. And Ukraine has shown the value of standing up for liberalism, the value of military means, the value of rearming, and so on and so forth. And that's that's been an extremely hard thing to process. So when you get occasionally gun-toting, slightly gonzo uh, Shiba Inu dogs saying appalling things, quite rightly, to uh, Russians on the internet. I think that creates a real problem. They don't know what to do with it. Yeah, I do think there is a problem with some of the academics who, yeah, they grew up in a time where generally their enemy, which is what we've talked about quite a bit, me and Matt, you know, the enemy was the USA or the UK, and I can understand it at that time, and they can't quite get past that lens, and if they've been in academia, they've not dealt with the real world, so to speak, they might be a little bit unsure how to conceptualise the driving force of NAFO, I would say, because they just operate in a different reality on them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's that's right. And it's been a very confronting moment for them. And I've certainly had pushback on on some things to do with that. Um, but one one thing also perhaps to, to emphasize that you asked the question before about how to how to get everyone on side. And I think this this relates a little bit, but it it uh, is different as well. Um, and I flippantly said, you know, wait, wait for the book. But I think one thing that we've we've seen the value of in some of those who embrace NAFO, for example, is the value of clear communication and clear communication with people explaining why this matters, why it's important, what are the alternatives that are there, what are the costs of not doing the type of things that, for example, Estonia or um, others who have been in the in the vanguard of supporting Ukraine have done. Showing that kind of leadership that Kalas and others have shown and actually explaining again very clearly why we have to invest in this now, why it's actually an investment rather than a cost and so on. Um, and making clear to people that this is this is about our future, that this is about um, the things that really do matter and that this isn't just a cynical game. And it's that overcoming of cynicism that I think many academics haven't managed, whereas actually quite a few politicians have managed it. And people have gone with them, those who are clear about this, those who are able to communicate in that way. Yeah, I think that's a really good point and a good way of articulating it. I want to move on because Matt put, came up with this question. And this is something we hear a lot in the disinformation world quite a bit. Um, you know, multipolar world, multipolarity. Right. <laughs> we, we, dis we discussed this in... Um... In a, in a DM, didn't we? And I, I just I just thought maybe we could discuss it, discuss yeah, it further what actually, here. What actually is multipolarity in your view, and how do the top, the pro Russians and whatnot get it wrong? <laughs> sure, no, I, it was a great question in the DM. 
Matt, and I was happy to engage with it because I could see how this would come across in in general communication. Because it seems like all all the bad guys are for multipolarity. So what's what's the point of this? And I mean, it, it really simply means just that there are multiple great powers of roughly equal standing or comparable standing in the world. So you can compare it to bipolarity, which a classic example would be during the Cold War. There were two main poles, um, the, the US-led bloc and the Soviet bloc, or unipolarity, which is what some people would describe the uh, immediate post-Cold War era as uh, the, the time of the US as a hegemon or a hyperpower, as the French foreign minister back in the day, Hubert Verdrine, put it. Um, and those those all imply, for some views of international relations, those all imply particular things will happen or be more likely or less likely. Um, multipolarity as it's used now, and and Joe, do jump in on this as, as well. Uh, Matt, Matt, I want to hear mm. your too, is mainly used by those who are against the so-called systemic competition and who like would like to see competing sources of power in the world, which could as they see it, either be a force or could be a force for stability and for avoiding conflict. And that's one of the, the modes of sort of great power management of the international system. Those who are against it tend to be more, more people along the NAFO line, more people along my line on this, um, who embrace the systemic competition and say this is actually, we, we need this kind of block formation around um, on the one side, liberal democracies, and on the other side, authoritarian regimes, to manage that competition better. And block formation was a key part of the management of the international system during the Cold War. It made democracies safer because it showed they were willing to stand up and fight to defend what was what they valued, to defend their our way of life, um, our interests, as well as our, our values. And by showing that willingness made that fight much less likely to happen. I mean, that's kind of deterrence 101. You have to be able to show that you will be able to stand up in order that you actually don't have to in military terms. So this bi bipolarity is certainly something being driven um, by the US at the moment, although they're mainly focusing that on, on China. Um, Russia is an inconvenient and awkward actor in this because it's not something that they had strategically wanted to necessarily focus on, but have done to to a a degree. And it's it's interesting to see that at the recent conferences I've been to in May, um, Steve Clemens, who summarized this very well when he said the overriding feeling I think at these three Central East European security conferences has been one of massive gratitude to the U.S. for the support it's provided to Ukraine and massive disappointment that it's limited that support. Mm. You can see that strategic uncertainty that is still um, still perhaps dogging the, the Biden administration there. And many of us are trying to push the Biden administration and push other key Western actors into a more bipolar view of the world in practice as well as in, in rhetoric, mm. because we think that's the best way to actually ensure not only the survival of liberal democracies, but the, to make sure that free societies can thrive in future as well. Doesn't this risk, though, reinforcing, you know, the great powers paradigm, the neorealist paradigm? Wouldn't it be better if we had no giant orbits, no spheres? Wouldn't it be better if we moved away from this? Well, I think we need to, to arm ourselves like great powers, but see the world like small states. And that's one of the key, mm -hmm. key tenets of neo-idealism in terms of not not sort of enforcing great power spheres of influence, but recognizing the right to self-determination of all democratic societies. And that's something different than the great power view of the world that um, neorealism would have. 
And I think it's it's an interesting thing that we've seeded in IR theory, we've seeded the ground of power in a meaningful sense to theories that many of us disagree with. And neo-idealism is in a way an effort to take that back and say you can do positive things with this, you can do positive things with military means, you can do positive things with uh, understanding hard power, if at the same time you also understand soft power and its importance and you're able to combine the two by remorselessly and ruthlessly focusing on your values and treating your values as interests rather than sort of nice to have luxuries to be put aside when the kind of interests that drive realist thinking come to call. Uh, I think, unless Matt, you have anything to add, I want to back up a second because I think just for this, for anyone listening who's not super familiar with, I think it'd be worth breaking down briefly the, the main schools of like IR thought and how neo idealism fits into that. But Matt, do you have anything you want to add on that first before we do that? Yeah, so so I'm coming at it from an outsider and uh, so getting involved in the Ukrainian support, it's made me completely reevaluate. The way I the way I actually look at the the history um, since well since the Cold War so the Vietnam War everything that's happened since then you you, you look back and you go mm, it's a bit it's not black it's no no longer black and white and I, I'm just wondering if it's if the way that you've yeah, interacted with this conflict and with people in Ukraine has, has changed the way that you're thinking in that area. So, yeah, yeah, very much, very much so. Um, it's given it's given me confidence to pursue lines of thought that had perhaps seemed a little bit taboo beforehand. Okay. Um, to reject uh, some sort of critical orthodoxies that have become very hard to to shift and to to overtly do that. It's also given me a lot of confidence, and I, I write this in the in the book to Ukraine with love in the introduction, where NAFO are, are thanked. <laughs> Yeah, I think I'm in there as well. Thank you. You are. No, you certainly are. Um, It it freed me up in my writing, um, made me want to express myself more clearly and to a wider audience and not to get hung up in some of the conventions of academia that actually I don't find very useful, but felt that I had to follow. And this this, I mean, chimed with my move from from academia into think tanking. I'd, I'd always done policy work as well, but now it's my my prime job rather than my my side hustle. And that that freedom to to express and the freedom to say clearly to take positions and stand by them and not to worry if you get negatively judged by some people on that not to try and please everybody not to try and find that comfortable middle ground but to actually strike out for a better um a better place that's the difference i think a lot of this made um while at the same time exactly like like you thinking through the lessons that we can learn from past mistakes from past errors in morally based schools of foreign policy. And we'll, we'll get onto this perhaps, Joe, in just a second, but what can we learn from the difficulties and failures as well as the successes of neoconservatism, of um, liberal internationalism and so on? What do we have in common with realists, if there's anything, um, how to learn from that, how to differentiate and distinguish, and also how to very clearly criticize um, the things that are, are wrong in this. So how, how to draw the best from the history of IR? Um, in theory and in practice, and actually make that work for um, for our better future. That's been the drive there. And to be able to communicate that to politicians, decision makers, to make it stick to a certain extent, to have intellectual credibility around expert communities, 
uh, including some academic communities, but primarily also to use it as a way to give people the lenses to understand what's going mm. on, make sense of the world yeah. around them in this time of geopolitical flux and to see how they fit into changing that. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> it's definitely made me look at the way I was taught history and uh, international relations in, in university and school. It, it doesn't seem... It, it's, it's from, it seems to be from the wrong perspective now. If I'm looking now that I've, I've spoken to more people from uh, Germany and from Central Europe and from Ukraine, it, the way that we're taught history in the UK particularly seems to be um, completely off to me. <laughs> you know, um, just it, we it's just from one perspective, and the, the and it's just this it, it, cliched. There's no grey areas. There's it seems to be good guys, bad guys, and and nothing else. And I, th I think that's probably a problem for we're not going to solve here, but it's a, um, a wider issue. I think is how we how we look at that in society. I think maybe you yeah. should write a history textbook. <laughs> you should. Um, <laughs> think together, the NAFO uh, NAFO edited history of the world, <laughs> like a uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. counterpoint to Howard Zinn's people history, people's history. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, I was I was reading about um, something called the Pacific Counseling Service, um, which was a, like a subversive movement that rescued GIs um, from Vietnam and, and got them home. It was on the west coast of America, um, and it sort of formed the basis of the peace movement. And so they, I guess they were regarded as heroes, the students and everybody in there. And, and then you look at it now and you're in the same, in, from our perspective where they're fighting against they were fighting against an authoritarian state you know north vietnam and the vietnamese were not wasn't a particularly good government you know and do do we do we still look at them in the wrong in the, in the wrong way there was huge mistakes made in the way that they conducted the war but was the reason for it wrong i, I don't know now I'm not quite uh, so sure. The South, the South Vietnamese government was also really authoritarian. Yeah. So. Okay. Yeah. I know. I'm just. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm. I, I'm just looking at it from the new perspective. Is it? Uh, oh, we won't get into it now. But are are these things quite as black and white as as they were? I don't know. Anyway, that's that's so interesting, and I think it is worth um, understanding what what was a value there, what could be saved, as well as what what shouldn't, and what should be really condemned to the to the dustbin right. of history. Yeah, I think these re reading um, a couple of years ago, I read uh, George Packer's book about Richard Holbrook um, called Our Man, Richard Holbrook and the End of the American Century, which Holbrook starts his career as a young foreign service officer in uh, South Vietnam and is is on the ground. And his his friend at the time, who later became national security advisor, Tony Lake, he was national security advisor to Bill Clinton, um, was in um, in headquarters at the, at the embassy in uh, in Saigon, and the different perspectives they had of what was going on, how they differently realised what was the problem with the war and how it was being prosecuted, is is a really fascinating read in in that regard because you have someone like Holbrook who is an idealist going into that situation, and realising they're getting it wrong in practice, but also they got it wrong in conception. They got it wrong in terms of what type of war it was. They were in there for the wrong reasons. And as Joe said, with the wrong partners. Um, and that's that's a consistent lesson to learn. And it brings me to that famous Henry Kissinger line where you know, uh, supposedly he says of uh, Pinochet, 
He might be a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch. And that's the kind of thing we have to get away from. That's the problem, or one of the main problems there. There's there's another, just if 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 it's of interest, the book David Halberstam's book, The Best and the Brightest, about the Kennedy administration and all of the smart people who came into that and planned and then prosecuted the Vietnam War. Um, and what they got wrong as well. And so I think exactly learning from that while understanding that, that standing up to communism was a was a good thing to do. Standing up to national independence movements is a much more problematic thing mm. to do. Yeah. And yeah. they got that wrong. They got the nature of that conflict wrong. Um, so, but separating the two is difficult and yeah. understand what is the overall geostrategic part of that versus what is the nationally particular part of mm. that was something I think they got wrong as as well. Maybe just I'd say say one little more thing on that because mm-hmm. uh, Matt, I think one, I guess we we all went to school in the UK, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so I, at least where, where I where I grew up, we didn't um, get taught anything about Central and Eastern Europe, and so understanding histories of communism was skewed by understanding what the Soviet Union was, and it was also it, you know we didn't learn anything about the Baltics. Um, at that time, we've learned precious little about Ukraine. Um, and so understanding of the politics of communism, but also experiences of communism and experiences before communism. And what, thus why attitudes to communism in Central Eastern Europe are so different than in Western Europe. I think that kind of thing really impoverished our collective understanding of of geopolitics, not just of that region, but of geopolitics more widely and of understanding also what what our values are, how and why to stand up for them. I mean, you can find things in the popular literature, but actually getting taught that at at school would have been something more interesting and useful, I would have thought. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, it was it was presented as a um, this this was the Soviet Union, the, the Stalin, and they did things, we did things, and then they just you just move on. But there was no. <laughs> Yeah, there, there was there was no nuance, and there was no um, sort of life experiences. It was sort of documented as you know various proxy wars and things like that. You probably remember, but that was that was about it. And it's just it's just been eye opening for me over the last year or so, and I guess for a lot of people as well. I'm sure it has, and that that for me was the fascination. Also, going out to to live in Central Eastern Europe mm-hmm. for it's been twenty years now, pretty much. Yeah. Um, and understanding those those histories from the ground up and understanding how that disjuncture occurs and why that disjuncture between the perspectives you commonly get in Central Eastern Europe and elsewhere matters. But then again, you look at commonalities too. And I mean, the instinctive British reaction to support Ukraine on behalf of the government across parties and largely on behalf of the population as well, which was something different than a lot of Western mm-hmm. European reactions and chimed much more with with the Central Eastern European reaction. So it's interesting to note those connections as well, I think. Yeah. I wonder if it's because we've had a bit more of an antagonistic history with Russia, or is it also because we love good underdog as well? And maybe it's this, is something taps into the British psyche? Because what I love when I'm in Britain, you know, I see Ukraine flags in poor areas, rich areas, it doesn't matter still. Yeah. And I find that very inspiring and it makes me happy. Yeah. There's yeah. Uh, uh, Al Pop has a Ukrainian flag in the window. It's just a normal pub. Yeah. That's great, dear. That's really yeah. cool. You get I, that, yeah, all over yeah. Central Eastern Europe. And actually, in a lot of places in Berlin, you get it too. Okay. In 
little corner yeah. pubs and things like that, yeah. which is encouraging. It must the nearby be. town has flags up as well. I think they're still good. they're still there. Yeah, it's very strict. It's very um, interesting. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think there's something about this sort of willingness to resort to military means in the British um, geostrategic psyche that is is there in a way that it isn't in certain other countries um, or hasn't been, for example, in Germany. There's things about grandeur and place in the world and so on that I, I think play into, in addition to those things, Joe, that you rightly said um, as well. And all that, I mean, it's it's always a com- very complex picture with these things, but there's so many different factors there at, at work. Do you want me to talk a bit about neo-idealism? Yeah, let's do that. We've got yeah. a bit of time left, so let's, let's crack on. So, yeah, what is neo-idealism and how... How does it fit with the other theories? And give a brief rundown of what they are for anyone who's not an IR weirdo like us. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Right. Um, I, I guess I'll have to be in that camp then. <laughs> All right. So new idealism came from um, something I saw as commonalities in the approach or in the response to Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine um, from from Ukrainians and from their government, but also from um, the Baltic states, Central East European countries, including the Czech Republic, and in the initial period, Slovakia, um, that struck me as being an interestingly different approach that really put the values case and the moral case for supporting Ukraine and supporting Ukraine to win, supporting Ukraine with military means, um, giving it everything it needed as early as possible, being willing to step up and go beyond what had been done elsewhere. Um, So, for example, the Czech Republic being the first to send tanks, um, then followed by by Poland, of course, Um, the Estonians sending uh, heavy weapons early on um, and sending huge amounts of their GDP in, in support of Ukraine. Uh, Latvia, same thing. Lithuania, very similar as well. The Slovaks sending the the S three hundred and being willing to consider the MIGs already last last April. So I was looking at why this was and put it together with looking at the rhetoric that was coming from some of the leading politicians in the regions: Kaya Kalas in Estonia, um, Jan Lipavski in the Czech Republic, uh, Gabriela Landsbergis, who we mentioned before in in Lithuania, and Artis Pabriks, who used to be the deputy prime minister of Latvia. And in, in a lot of the things they were saying, they were really putting values absolutely front and center. And, and Pabriks got to the heart of the matter in Berlin last year at an event where in discussion with a German think tanker, he uh, stared down from the podium and said, you know, we're willing to die for freedom. Are you? And which, <laughs> which um, quietened the question mm-hmm. quite quickly, let's say. Uh, but it really put a point on on this phenomenon that I was trying to grapple with and trying to understand what what it was and why it was different. So I explored this, looked for more examples, um, saw counter cases. um, So we could see, for example, that the Polish response to Ukraine in military terms has been massively strong. Uh, It's also been rhetorically strong, but it didn't have quite the same emphasis on liberal values. Um, And certainly we can see the the peace government in Poland is not a liberal actor. I mean, they're avowedly an illiberal actor in many ways, not in the international sphere necessarily, but certainly domestically. And so you could say it's not that everyone who's responded strongly to Ukraine has this what I call neo-idealist approach, but there are some that do seem to have that. And so I wanted to draw this out a little bit and see what it contrasts to and um, what what makes it what it is. Um, and it, it really mm-hmm. did strike me that this was very different than the way that Olaf Scholz was going about things in Germany or that Emmanuel Macron was going about things in France. And so... 
to give quickly an idea of what neo neo idealism is as I see it, and there's going to be a new piece coming out on this, um, hopefully very soon, uh, which provides a decent summary and not the kind of book length summary. But I think it's a morally based approach to geopolitics that is really grounded in the, the power of values, um, but the power of values conceived as ideals to strive for, to work towards, to continue to try and achieve, even if we've imperfectly upheld them in the past. And the kind of values I'm talking about here are human rights and fundamental freedoms, particularly socially and cultural liberalism. So this, um, we could see, for example, the support for gay pride from Jan Lipavsky. You're probably not going to get the peace government in Poland doing that any anytime soon. Um, Self-determination for democratic societies, which means you don't have to be subsumed into the sphere of influence of a great power like Russia, um, which Russia has been trying to do with Ukraine um, and would love to do, I'm sure, with the Baltic states. But also um, seeing that these that we, we need to restore the possibility of a hopeful future to citizens in democratic societies. That seemed to me to be at the heart of all of this, about actually trying to understand and give the substance back to our claim that liberal democracy is a superior system in terms of material outcomes, but also in terms of moral outcomes. And so I think that these neo-idealists see these values actually as interests in themselves, which is where it would stand very much in opposition to realism as a theory of IR. But what it shares with realism is that is an interest in power, in hard power, military power, and how that enables you to do the kind of things in the world that you want to do. It just does it for different purpose and understands a different rationale behind that. Although, I mean, you could make the case that if you take values as being interests, then it's actually just a different set of interests that are being pursued. But I think there's there's more to the distinction than that. The other ways that it would distinguish itself from, from realism, which you, I'm sure everyone listening knows, is associated with people like John Mearsheimer, Charles Kupchan. And I would I would have seen the approach of Emmanuel Macron up to last, well, relatively recently, as being primarily characterized by a realist focus on, on great powers, um, whereby great powers are the only actors in the international system with any real agency. And there's um, a good example of this where Stephen Walt, who's another well-known realist, this is back in 2015, he said that the West should do whatever it takes to convince Russia that we want Ukraine to be a neutral buffer state in perpetuity, which is a you know basically letting Ukraine to the tender mercy of uh, of the Putin regime, something that Ukrainians have obviously resisted massively and rightly so. And it's the rejection of that type of logic that is at the heart of neo-idealism's neo difference to realism. Now, some people have said that neo-idealism sounds like liberal internationalism, um, which it certainly is liberal in the same way. But I think the liberal internationalism that we've seen in the last 15 years has really run out of political steam and it's become mired in putting institutions first, institutional design first, and a very legalistic and technocratic approach to, to the world. Whereas I think it's increasingly apparent that neo-idealists would see institutions as means to their ends rather than ends in themselves. And you can see that in the, the dissatisfaction with the UN, you can see it in the uh, criticism of people like Viktor Orban within the EU, uh, Lipavsky has said that you know Hungary needs to choose sides and choose whether it really belongs to the e in the EU and NATO. That's pretty strong talk, um, saying that actually we need to make our institutions coherent and fit for purpose. If they're liberal institutions, they should serve liberal political ends. And so, I mean, you can see this in von der Leyen's comment about Ukraine. They're one of us and we want them in which contrasts very strongly to Lipavsky's attitude towards Hungary. I think there's also a lot to do, and there's not time to talk about it all now, um, with 
a difference in the way that we view trade compared to liberal internationalism, trade and the its uses in terms of pacifying the world, the, the convergence wager after the end of history and so on. Um, what in German is known as Wandel durch Handel, uh, so change through trade. New idealists are really suspicious of that because we've seen the way it's failed. Um, and so rethinking these things again to serve our values rather than short-term economic interests and to better align the sources of our security with the sources of our prosperity, which I think is something that liberal internationalists have struggled to do. But the big difference behind all of it, to go back to where I started, is that actually neo-idealists would put liberal politics ahead of liberal practice or liberal procedure. Um, and so they focus more on the outcomes rather than the fetishizing the rules, let's say. So it seems to me what the fundamental difference is, and maybe if I'm wrong, between a lot of other IR theories, this isn't saying, this isn't about describing the world and saying, oh, these countries do this and that, and therefore we have a policy. This is like a normative saying, this is how things should be. Okay, it describes some countries, but not all of them, but this seems more like a guiding philosophy to aim towards. Would that be correct? Yes, I think that's that's a fair description. I mean, I think you could... With all of these type of theories, you can then transform them and say, okay, if we were to understand there was a neo-idealist logic at work, how would we expect this situation to play out? What would we expect country X to do in the case of Taiwan? What would we expect country Y to do in terms of the WTO or so on? So you could use it analytically in that way as well, but it is primarily a normative theory um, that seeks to be a, a grand strategy to, to save the future of liberal democracies, really. So this no is quite different. Yeah, this is quite different to most of our theory, then. I think this is also perhaps some of the source of confusion because I, you know, I've seen criticism of your ideas and a lot of it is going, oh, it's like this. It's like, yeah, I, I, I perceived yours as more of a, this is how it should be, not this is how it is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not sort of conjured from nowhere that this is the point, no, was it? No. <laughs> out of observation. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I totally take the point. That wasn't a criticism of your uh, your comment. Um, but yeah, it is. It's a, it's a normative theory uh, or a normative approach to geostrategy that actually yeah, seeks to make the world again safe for democracy. But to learn again the lessons from how we got that wrong in the past. And one big set of lessons to learn, obviously, which has been a, a source of confusion for some people who say this just sounds like neoconservatism warmed up again, yeah. is that, I mean, neoconservatism was, yeah, a, an approach to the world, a grand strategy, if you like, or a sort of underpinnings of a grand strategy that sought to impose democracy by force. Um, Neo-idealists wouldn't do that. I think they seek to defend it where democracy is threatened. Uh, so if intervening in Iraq was a really quintessential neoconservative endeavor, arming and funding Ukraine to ensure its victory is a neo-idealist one, I think you could see that neo-idealists would welcome regime change in Russia if it would bring a liberal democratic government to power, but they wouldn't focus so much on actively bringing that about inside Russia, rather they'd focus on preventing um, Russia from doing harm outside its borders and looking at those actions externally to make the change internally in, in Russia. The other big difference is that, I mean, neoconservatism was really um, entangled with neoliberal economics. And again, that's something that neo-idealism is rethinking as part of the wider rethinking that's going on uh, for that. And it's interesting there to note that Jake Sullivan, who's not necessarily everyone's idea of a neo-idealist, um, straight up on on Ukraine, as he's been one of the sort of breakmen of this uh, US effort there. His speech on the 27th of April, which a lot of people have said basically announced the end of the old Washington consensus, 
that had quite a few new idealist elements in economic terms. And what I'm working on next is to try and bring some of those things together in, and to really broaden the scope of the, the approach. The last difference is that um, neo idealism isn't conservative. Uh, it's liberal. It's highly liberal. And some some people would say that you know a lot of the neocons started off as liberals. And yes, yeah, some some of them did. That's true. But if you look at the Bush administration, there were also a lot of genuine conservatives in their cultural conservatives. Or if you look at uh, neocons like Daniel Patrick Moynihan, his famous essay defining deviancy down and so on. That's hardly a liberal cultural agenda. So this this is where I think new idealism brings a different set, a different constellation of ideas together in a much more thoroughgoingly liberal way um, and says this is in our interest as well as in our um, uh, supporting our values. OK, so let's say applying this because earlier you touched on this thing about um, well, we talked about neoconservatism. We also talked about the USA and the ambiguity of support, you know, so as Europeans, all Europeans here, well, we're or British, European, whatever. Um, so we, should we have, you know, what's the role of the USA? What should be the Europeans' relationship with the USA? Because at the moment, obviously, NATO is very dependent on the USA. What role does the USA have in an ideal, in an ideal, new ideal, a new idealist um, world? Uh, should we try to be more of an equal footing? Would a European army be the way forward? What would you think about this? It's a very, it's a very important question. Um, and there are, there are different views on this, of course, mainly conditioned by what they expect to happen in the US and also the self-image that, um, that certain parts of Europe have, have of them, themselves and of Europe. I think if, if I were to offer sort of advice from a neo-idealist perspective, then it would be to say that regardless of those things, Europeans have to do more to provide for, for our own security, but also for the security of the wider democratic world. And this is the seeing like a small state element here. It's actually about really reinforcing liberal and democratic ordering, being able to defend ourselves. So arming ourselves like great powers. Yes, absolutely right. We need a big rearmament program in Europe um, across pretty much the whole board of capabilities, not only to replace that which we've sent to Ukraine, but to actually get our militaries up to, to scratch more generally. Um, and by doing that, I think we give we give less of an excuse for any American administration to say that we're not pulling our, our weight, that we're not doing our fair share of actually taking care of what is in the common interest of um, the US and other democratic societies, including those in Europe. Now, the exact contribution that we would make to, for example, the um, security in the Indo-Pacific would be a matter for, for military strategists to get involved with and also for negotiation between the different countries involved. But there's a lot of thinking that says we need to be able to really do our bit in taking care of our um, ourselves in order to free up the US to do more there. So there's an argument to be had in that regard as well. But more widely, I think we need to be really intensifying the ties between liberal and democratic societies. So things like friendshoring, uh, mutual investment in each other's um, economies. And this is what you're starting to see um, a little bit in the US with the uh, the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act and so on. They're trying to get investment back to the US and trying to attract investment from other democratic societies. Some have seen protectionism in this, but I don't think you necessarily have to if you had comparable arrangements in other countries as well and in, in EU countries, for example. But we need to look at ways of doing that more, more in a more thoroughgoing way that means that we can really deepen those connections in order that we can actually 
make the necessary investment to accelerate our green transformation, accelerate our digital transformation, to remain at the technological cutting edge, to maintain technological superiority, but also to make our society sustainable in every way, be that ecologically, politically, um, and um, economically, ecologically, and politically, is what I'm trying trying to say. Mm -hmm. And that intensifying that trade and... um, technological revolution i think gives us the chance to do that if we have a a, alongside that a rethinking of where how we share those benefits with people in our society so that more people can actually see those benefits and feel them in a tangible way and can actually have that hope of the better future that is there we need to give that a real tangible meaning in people's lives because if we don't have that then i don't think we can convince people to pay the costs that are needed now in order to invest in in that future so that that is about reviving um, the amplifier effects of economic activity between democratic states and societies, um, and finding new sources of value for people in their in their labour as well as in their life. So no no small challenge there. But that all comes together with pulling our weight militarily, arming ourselves like great powers, seeing like small states in terms of how we build ordering between us and the kind of institutions that we build, making those fit for purpose as well. Um, not accepting illiberal institutions between our between ourselves, and then managing relations with the rest of the world. And so that that means being open to democratizing societies while strongly standing up to non democratic um, non democratic states. So I think we have a lot to do together, and I think it's understanding those commonalities that would actually bring, regardless of the American administration, America still has underlying interests and. Um, a lot of those are actually bound up in that same values game that we have. Pretty good answer. I appreciate you've got to go. Am I correct? I, I have five more minutes if you want to. If you want to continue for a little moment. Mm, uh, well, no, I, yeah, Matt. Well, sorry. Uh, sorry, I've I've got one one last question. Is the uh, it's sort of like a practical thing now? So, do you have do you think that the dam explosion is going to have any impact and what the what the West is going is going to do, go the way they're going to help Ukraine, or the way they deal with Russia, and you've got five minutes to answer that really complicated question. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll do I'll do my best, but then I have a yeah question. yeah yeah. I'm just really interested in that as well. Yeah. Sure. Um, I mean, okay, it shows again the recklessness and the wanton destruction that the Putin regime and the, the Russian military the Russian society is willing to wreak upon the the world. I think it makes the case clearer in places like Germany um, that they must be stopped and that the only way they can be stopped is with military means. And that's a case that's being progressively won here in the population and across various parts of the government. As I've written about, I don't think it's there all the way yet in the chancellery, but um, there is movement there too. Uh, Certainly there's movement in the Elysee, in Paris, um, as we've seen in recent statements from Macron, which I expect to be backed up in in practice. So I think this makes the case easier and better for further arming Ukraine. Mm -hmm. The counter argument, of course, is that it just shows that we're dealing with an irrational actor uh, but we knew that already. Um, but an irrational actor that responds to force. Um, so again, I think it makes makes the case. If we understand and educate people properly on the deterrence that we have against Russia, then I think we have no no problem in actually taking the proper lesson from this damn incident, which is just a, an appalling thing to have done. And so using that to actually further the case for Ukrainian victory. 
Um, and I think Zelensky is in the process of doing that extremely well. And Ukraine has good advocates all around for, for doing that. I think so. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, let's so we have a proper ending uh, with all of us here. Um, yeah. Ben, thank you for being here. Is there anything you would like to shout out? Any perhaps charitable causes, organizations you would like to promote while you're here? Or any events, books, things like this? <laughs> okay. Um, Your book, I assume, but yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I've said enough about that. <laughs> I'm Ukraine with love. Um, but I, oh, you've caught me on the hop there, uh, to be honest. Uh, in terms of promoting it, I mean, I think if anyone who wants to donate to the NAFO um, endorsed causes or who wants to donate to United 24 um, is onto a good good thing anyone who keeps spreading messages the right messages amplifying things through social media who keeps asking the right questions of our politicians who keeps feeding things in to analysts who can then write pieces who can um which influence the advisors of politicians because this i mean this a lot of people perhaps don't understand quite how this often works politicians often don't have time to read um big in-depth pieces they might read some smaller things who reads it for them is their advisors they read the things from think tanks, they read the things from media. People who write things such as me for think tanks and for media take ideas from the world. We test ideas out on social media. We're very grateful when it's amplified, when it gets the good kind of constructive critique that helps sharpen the argument. All of that plays a role in actually winning the discursive battle and the battle of ideas that I think is still at the, the key of making sure that we win the fight in Ukraine and that we actually win the systemic competition overall. So rather than charity, this is about doing your part and, of course, donate to the mm. um, the other causes I mentioned before. But that, for me, is also the lesson of NATO, NAFO. Um, all of this matters. All of this counts. And it's those million small actions that actually add up to a huge amount. There was one um, wonderful analogy a few years back. It was a hedge fund that used it, but don't crucify me for, uh, for using that. They said, what... What we do differently is we hoover up the nickels from all over the world and we collect those. And that sort of power of mass numbers of small activities has translated a lot over into social media and to the ways that we now engage in the world. And I think we're starting to get the hold of the idea about how we use that for democratic, for liberal purpose and for better politics. And so I'd encourage people to keep doing that. Stay involved, stay engaged. Guys, thanks so much. That was really Thank fun. You. Yeah, I really um, enjoyed it. Thank you. Happy to come back on anytime if we want to talk about anything more specific, do a shorter segment, whatever it might be. Um, really grateful for what you're doing. And uh, Matt, thanks again for the for the fella and the thing. No tank. problems. Yeah, no worries. And <laughs> say hello to uh, Mr. Macron for me next time you see him. <laughs> yes, I'm sure he'll do his best to avoid me next time. <laughs> cool. Have you got anything to shout out? Before we finish, um, yes, go and donate to two things. One, I'm looking for a four by four, but I think I found it, so probably don't need to worry about that. The go. main thing I want to shout out for is please go and donate to any fundraisers will help her son. Anything that will um, get boats to people, get goods to people. Uh, keep if you're in the West, please write to your politicians about this because this seems to be really quiet and it's especially in yes. Britain. I'm very annoyed. Please go and do what you can. This is a horrific act and we can't sit idle on it. Yeah. So yeah, this is a wake up call. Don't you know? We can't yeah. fall asleep on these things. This is what write, happens. Write to your MP, your Congressperson, your um, yeah, your representative, yeah. whoever it is. I think that's everything for me. 
Yeah, that's I think that's it. Um, I think there's some small local fundraisers in for um, dinghies and water filters and things like that. Um, I have shared two on my yeah. Twitter, okay. so you can go have yeah. a look. What uh, Renegade Relief Runners are doing one, okay, and I shared a local one too. So okay. yeah, I, I think the um, the June fellows, Burp, and various other people are doing a, a match your funding donation as well. Um, yes, but there's lots going on for the dam. So well, thank you for listening. We'll see yeah. you next time. Probably be Thank the two you. of us, but who knows? Yeah. Oh, the counteroffensive has started, apparently. Let's see if that's true this time. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Cheers, Joe.